Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth. And this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Dr. Sanjay Janasia, a practicing triple board certified hematologist and medical oncologist known nationally as the OncDoc, where he boasts over half a million subscribers across his social media platforms. He is also the host of Target Cancer Podcast, where he chats with distinguished guests discussing novel advancements and conceptual challenges of cancer as a whole. Dr. Janasia has been featured on CNBC, Bloomberg, WebMD, The Washington Post, and serves as an active international keynote speaker, as well as contributor for Entrepreneur Magazine. Dr. Janasia currently practices alongside his wife at the Mary Bird Cancer Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In this episode, we talk about what everyone should be doing to detect cancer early, including the potential of some new screening methods, his top diet and lifestyle tips for preventing cancer, how our genetics only account for 15% of cancers, the future of cancer treatments, including AI, and so much more. Keep listening to get all your questions answered around cancer and meet Dr. Sanjay Janesha. It's officially oatmeal season, and I'm so excited to share that you can find our Purely Elizabeth oatmeal products at select Walmart stores just in time to get cozy with a warming breakfast. You can find our blueberry flax oatmeal multi-packs and dark chocolate chunk oatmeal cups in the cereal aisle. Our gluten-free instant oatmeals are made with organic oats combined with five superfood grades and seeds for a delicious taste and texture. Our packs and cups make for an easy breakfast, snack, or dessert, and they're also perfect to take on the go. Click the store locator in the show notes to find a Walmart store near you. Happy oatmeal season and happy shopping! Dr. Sanjay Danesha, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for having me and for everyone that listens and getting educated and it takes a it really does take a village to help the healthcare system and and everyone i think needs to be their biggest advocate so i very much respect people taking the initiative and and unfortunately it's unfortunate you know to have to but but i think that's the safest thing to do absolutely and i love that about you and your tiktoks and really just bringing this education and awareness around something that you know, as I think back to my grandfather having cancer, it was like, oh, no, we're going to talk about the C word. And it was this thing we didn't want to talk about. Right. And so bringing it really into the conversation and how we can be preventative and the best things we can be doing when we do have a diagnosis. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. Oh, of course. It's, a, it's an honor. I feel like I feel like the universe always has a, a purpose for you. Right. And it's not for success or, you know, things in vain. It's like if those, if you reach those things, if you get a viewership on TikTok or if you, you know, able to work hard enough and get into it, whatever that is, it may seem like it benefits you, but really, I think we all, I think they're all a means to an end to benefit the world. And I think we all have it. And that's why I always use the word honor because it's a privilege to be able to help, you know, the world. Yeah. So did you always feel like this was your calling? At what point did you know that this was your destiny? So I always wanted to be a teacher. I knew that much. Actually, a science teacher in middle school, I had a pretty influential one that made me appreciate what would be silly things like why the leaves change and why the speed of of, of taking a turn on your on your car actually has to go down because of the friction. And, and you know, so I was like, wow, it just makes the world more, I guess, enchanting. And then I got into a bad uh, car accident. Coincidentally, after the example I just used, it was not on a turn. <laughs> and I was like legally blind for a while. And wow. I remember, well, when people ask, like, well, weren't you scared you wouldn't see again? And I was like, I was kind of weirded out with the fact that I wasn't. And I was wondering why. And I realized it was because every single step like of the way, and I wasn't medical at this point, but my ophthalmologist would tell me, like, this is what's wrong. This is what your pressure is. It's blocked up. This is why you're doing the drop because they'll open it up. And then, you know, and then we celebrated little victories. And so it was that whole process that I kind of chalked up to what really uh, kind of reduced the fear of the whole thing of the long term and everything and gave you micro goals. 
and you had victories during a time you still couldn't see. And then that basically translated to, to cancer. You know, I was like, where else can you use that? And the doctor, you know, doctor means, you know, a teacher, like at its root word. And that's why the PhDs were the first doctors. So I still get to teach, but I get to hopefully make something, you know, on the surface, very scary. I mean, still scary, but, but less scary is the hope and that you can still live and enjoy despite that, whether it's curative or incur- incurable. People live for years now, but either way, even if it's curative, it can still be debilitating mentally. But I think the more you understand, I see that every day in my clinic, someone that's very meek and then all of a sudden vibrant, you know, four weeks in, diagnosis hasn't changed anything, but they're just living their best life. And I think that has to do with education. Yeah, I love how you use the word reducing the fear. I think that that mm-hmm. is so powerful and um, something that, like you said, it might not change, but it's all that mindset shift and something that quite frankly all of us can use whatever it is in life of we need to be reducing fear of so many things that come in our way i mean if you really sat down and thought about it and i do this sometimes i was i did philosophy in undergrad and it's called an existential crisis but if we all sit down you know i'm sorry if this sounds graphic but it's like there is a an actual month day and year of when our time is up right and we forget about it we just don't think about it but it's like but if you were to and things of the world going on and everything, you start to freak out, right? So, but so it hasn't changed. That fact hasn't changed. But that moment you've thought about is very scary and kind of like makes you not want to do anything. And the next day, like you stop thinking about it, or you're like, yeah, okay, I understand that, but I'm going to do X, Y, Z and be the best dad I can. It's the same principle, right? So it's like it's it's just a matter of we're all finite, cancer, no cancer, etc. How much do you let it kind of temper? you doing the most, both like for your family or, or yourself or your friends or the world, whatever it is, we do it all the time. And I think this is just another example of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you in your, you know, you went to school, you studied, you started practicing, certainly not every oncologist perhaps has this type of practice and, and treatment of how you work with clients or, or patients. Was that something that did come to you right away? Or how did you kind of learn your area of expertise in that well i mean it, it takes to be a board certified you know hematologist oncologist it takes i think the quickest you can do is 14 years so it took 14 years i have all the boards and everything as as you know anyone else and i do practice traditionally like with with you know the same guidelines that and you have to because the treatments are so expensive that to be approved that be data you know supported but um so I'd say my practice in the sense of the treatments are more or less the same. I am more keen on the trials before they get approved, if they work really well. The sad fact is there's a whole bunch of things that are very promising right now that people are getting that you just can't get. And and I guess rightfully so until they demonstrate an actual overall benefit, either survival or recurrence, even if they look great, right? Like that's the humility of medicine. So, you know, I think being aware of trials and there's a bunch of stuff now that helps patients like find them themselves if their if their doctor is very busy and, and there's not a lot in town. Um, and then of course, like considering the things that you don't learn in the traditional system when it comes to, you know, nutrition, diet, again, this is something that's truly far more complicated than it seems. That's the piece. I'm curious how you learn, not what you're taught in school, yeah. but there's other pieces that are so important. There's a, there's a cost there, right? Like, like I, I don't have much time I mean, I work very full time and, and I'm backed up for weeks. Um, it just takes giving up things really is really the only answer. Cause I, I don't think it's right that it needs to be a medical oncologist that says they can't speak on those things and then not have your medical oncologist. You know, that's not fair to a patient, right? Like patients already and the whole family is strung out, has a scary diagnosis and like, then you're like, oh, but you got to go figure it out in different localities, in different places. Like this, you also get that thrown on you, like on top of just the whole news. Like, so I think there's a lot that can be done on hopefully reducing the burden of what the caregivers and the patients have to like take on. Because I think anyone would agree that it's enough to have to have a cancer diagnosis and, and treatments and stuff like that. Absolutely. So before we get into some of all of that, let's kind of get the foundation. Obviously, we we all know what cancer is, but that's kind of get to the root of like really what happens in the body when we have cancer and kind of some of that foundational stuff that we might think we know, but have kind of overlooked perhaps. So I think even what cancer is maybe challenging to really understand at its root. 
And what it is, is a basically what was or were your normal cells that undergo changes either in its environment, your normal cells. Remember, like your hand is, you know, a different hand in five years. I always thought that was kind of silly, but what they mean is nothing you're seeing existed five years ago. Like that, these are all cells that have come since then. And that happens to everything in your body. And so your co- cells are constantly dying and replicating. Well, if there's a place in your body that things have gone awry, things have like basically had some mutations that'll make it continue to live and not be in order, not die when it's supposed to and stuff. If they go undetected by your immune system or by your you know police system that's within the cell, then those kind of, you know, continue to get fertilized. And then all of a sudden this population of cells, otherwise known as mass, is now a cancer. But it is your cells. Like it's still your, it still has the same, you know, ish DNA and things that, that you were born with. That's what makes it so challenging. Because how do you beat something that is you, but just with extra tools? And so if it's in one place, obviously you just hack that whole colony out, that whole rogue you know, colony that somehow escaped over usually months or years, potentially depending on the type, you just want to take that and a whole bunch of not affected stuff around it. That's why you do a lumpectomy with breast cancer. That's why you do half the colon out with colon cancer. You might say like, why don't they just cut it out? Because you want to make sure everything around it, if they're even thinking about going rogue and, and fighting, overhauling the government, if they're even two steps away, you want to cut all of it out. So the best thing you can do is remove the population. But when it starts to spread, or becomes like what's usually a stage three, now it has developed a way to hitchhike. It knows how to, it learned how to put a thumb up and get a ride on your lymph nodes and start going into your lymph nodes. It learned how to jump off the highway and take, take you know, make a new neighborhood somewhere else in your lung. And so that's what cancer is doing. It's basically being your normal cells, but taking up a lot of your energy, a lot of your calories, and it's just doing what it's told to do inherently, which is live. That's why any of us are alive today. If we didn't have the inherent ability for ourselves to say, I will at all costs live, then we wouldn't have evolved. And so what happens is that cell that has that inherent property, I will live, doesn't know any better that it's being bad. It just says, I got to do everything I can to live. And that's what makes cancer so hard to beat because you're trying to beat thousands of years of evolution and involvement. So before we get into talking about how beating it and some of of that, you know, certainly one of the best things that we can do is prevention yes. and early diagnosis. So would love to hear a little bit about where we are today with early diagnosis. What should everybody know of the best things that they can be doing to find and diagnose cancer early? Well, number one is the boring answer because, but the most important one, you've got to get your screening that's approved. Health insurance companies and you know the healthcare system they're not trying to like give away money right they they will not do something if it costs them they will do something if it saves them guess what costs a lot of money having cancer right so if they have approved they'll say i will give you something like this every five or ten years or every year i'll pay for it. it's on me bro they're doing that because the data shows that if you do that you will like avoid a bad situation to some degree so that means the mammograms, right, at 40 or 45, sooner, if you have a primary family member, depending on their age, it means colonoscopies or the cards or whatever, you know, you talk to your doctor, what's the latest, but these things are designed and at the intervals of whether it's a year, whether it's five years, 10 years, those intervals are also calculated because they're like, hey, we're going to save money if we do it in five years or a year and two years, because if we wait too long now, we're spending a lot of money on people having stage four cancer. Like it sounds barbaric, but at least that that's kind of a, an idea of saying like, okay, I get it. I get why they're paying for this. So that's why the mammograms are important. The pap smears are so important, right? Like unless, you know, I'm too old where, when Gardasil wasn't out. Gardasil knocks away 85, 90% of the viruses that cause cancer, cervical cancer for females and head and neck for males. But especially if you didn't get that or if you had more than one partner, you know, Pastor is very important. Like that's one, that one they say should be curable because usually that takes a long time to be truly invasive cancer. That's why it's, you know, annoying when you're like, oh, I need a peep, you know, or I need a cone or they got to go back and do this. And it's like, why, why, why? Well, because they're seeing that it wants to be cancer. It's on its way. That's why they are obsessed with it because like, like you don't want it to be invasive and, and spread. It's pretty challenging. So do all your screening, right? 
and you can Google it. If you're a smoker, you know, you need an annual low dose CT scan. If you're over 50, that's missed 90% of the time by doctors. It's shameful. Saves one out of four people's lives. So outside of all the screening, there are all kinds of more creative ways that you could do um, and detect cancer. There's a lot that's happening. And that's what I talk about on my, my podcast, Target Cancer Podcast, but they're not approved. That's the challenge. But this whole thing with Grail, right, that everyone talks about, or the, the the cancer test is what they call it, right? When you get that blood test, it checks you for like 50, 60 cancers. How good is that test? It's pretty accurate. If you have it, it'll tell you. But it'll just tell you that you have or don't have it at that moment, right? So it doesn't tell you about six months from now, a year from now. It just tells you, do you have cancer currently? And that's the challenge about screening is, is you're checking to see if it's there. The The ideal thing, and with like mammograms and pap smears and colonoscopies is you're not just checking to see if you have cancer. You're checking to see if you have a sketchy, you know, person that looks like they will become cancer. That's why you get the investigations. That's why you get the biopsies. It's like, yo, is this thing going to cause a problem? That's the way you win because then you, you take out that polyp on the colonoscopy, you took out the chance of it being cancer. And we know which ones have a high likelihood, right? Same with the pap smear, same with the mammogram. And then same with skin lesions. That's why, like, if something looks sketchy on your skin, you know, you got to get it checked out because you don't want to it to become, you know, a cancerous lesion. So all these tests, the Kim Kardashian one, right? But that was going to be my next question. Like the Pronovo, is that what it's called? Right. Yes. Yeah. So like that, there's a bunch that are like that. Yeah. They're good in the sense that they can pick up things that are like hotter or sketchy, hotter in the sense of working harder, like a PET scan, PET scan lights up where there's activity. Cancers have high activity. So there's so many things coming out to show we can find where in the body something is getting hotter or looking like, why are they eating so much protein? Like a gym head, right? Like usually if you're eating a ton of creatine and protein, you're jacked, usually. So, you know, it's that correlation that a lot of these tests will be able to find and hopefully see it sooner because we don't have a lot of screening for it. But by far, the most important thing is if you were losing weight and you don't know why, right? Depression is a big reason and, and, and other things, but you're just losing weight, especially if you don't have hunger or, you know, your energy is just considerably less like than it was three months ago. These are all things that say, should I go see my doctor to see if I need to investigate something? If there's just no reason for these things happening. You think that some of these uh, newer technologies, i.e. that full body scan, et cetera, that that's going to soon be covered under insurance? Or do we have a ways to go for all of that? Yeah, we have a ways to go. I mean, if money wasn't an issue, right, I would, I mean, I'd get a full body MRI annually on myself if I could. I still haven't gotten one. Because that, what is it? It's just a bunch of pictures. It just looks mm -hmm. at every single thing and sees if something looks like it's an cancer. But the problem is, or maybe it's a good thing too, I don't know. But, but the problem is like, it has to be justifiable. So like does doing a full body MRI every year make a difference on people dying or not dying from cancer? You might say like, of course it does. But well, then, then they look at, well, what's the cost? And there's like, does the cost justify it, et cetera. So it gets challenging in that way. Most people won't get cancer, right? At the end of the day, like it's not like odds are everyone will have cancer. There's, there's tumors that are out there or things that you can get born with very rare leaf romini is one of them where you're where your robocop just doesn't work they have like a 50 percent chance a year of having cancer in that year right 90 percent of their lifetime so there are people like that that are, that are that do qualify for every year scans but most people won't so don't i hope nobody lives in fear of it but there's a bunch of things that i'm sure we'll get to that you could do to make sure that god forbid if you're faced with that diagnosis you can say well i did all these things to give myself the best shot the rest then the key that I try to teach is the world wills what it wills. Can you, but did you do the most without being, you know, counterproductive to say, well, I did, I did the things I was supposed to do versus yeah. I didn't get that. It's so hard for me with a 40 year old or 35 year old that has colon cancer or, or sorry, like breast cancer or whatever. So I'll say 45. That's it. Well, I'm behind on X, Y, Z. That's if I, if you take one message from here, I can't undo that. And I feel so bad for the family, for the spouse, that everyone has guilt because like I knew I needed to. And so you get your screenings, you get in a couple of you know habits that we'll talk about. Then you can say the rest is up to God, the universe, whatever you believe. But I did, you know, everything I could today that I have knowledge knowing would reduce my chance of this happening. Sure. Okay, great takeaway. So 
Let's talk then about some other preventatives. So we have the screenings, obviously, but if we look at a diet and lifestyle perspective, what are your top three to four things that we can all be doing um, in order? And I'm sure that list might be a lot longer than, than that, but top things that you really think are moving the needle to prevent cancer. Yeah. So I should preface by saying, because I'm a full-time oncologist, like I treat cancer, I'm not like an expert on all the preventive stuff, sure. but I can say that my podcast is that, so I can learn from the experts, right? Yeah. And there was a study that came out this summer. It was pretty awesome. And it, it confirmed what I already kind of knew and read and suspected, and we all knew. But if you take two people that are 45 or 50, and neither of them work out for the most part, they work, you know, they keep busy, they look after kids, groceries, blah, 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 but they don't work out. If you take those two people and you make one work strenuously, and by strenuous, I mean where that heart rate gets up to 150. So you're on that elliptical, you're doing the push-ups where you feel like you're going to die. Like for no, you know, that happens to me now. Like, I don't work <laughs> out. And I'm just like, I am so out of shape that if aliens or anything came out, I'd be like the first person gone. Like I'm dying after two minutes. <laughs> but the point is, if you get that heart rate up, walk the stairs at, at your work, whatever, for four minutes. I'm talking four minutes. You can't unhear this, so you may want to get off the podcast because you're going to be you're going to be burdened with with the knowledge I'm giving you that we were saying. Did I do everything? Four minutes a day of strenuous activity versus that person that has a normal functional life and isn't translates to about a twenty to twenty five percent chance decreased of having cancer in their lifetime. Wow. That is more than most. Okay, everybody, listen to that. It's four minutes only. Well, that's how they studied it, so it doesn't mean seven minutes not great. Right. But it means that just four minutes a day of getting that heart rate up. I'm, I'm, I'm talking do push-ups on your knees, do the jumping jacks, whatever your test is. For you, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It matters how what you're, what it puts on your body. So meaning like if your heart rate is up to 140, 50, that's the stress that's healthy. And that is healthy for a whole own podcast. But when that revs up, when your body does that, it immobilizes your immune system. What I tell you before about how cancers happen, they evaded the immune system. Don't go take immune boosters on Amazon. It's not the same thing. The immune system is very complicated. And there's a whole bunch of good things that happen with that heart rate going up. So yeah, those four minutes can make that, and it helps with glucose regulation and all this stuff. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but but that four minutes makes a huge difference. So if you could do 10 minutes, imagine if you could do 10 minutes, two or three times a day. So like, it's like, it's unbelievable, right? When I used to do, you know, I used to kind of be a personal trainer stuff. And I would tell people, I don't want you, I would much prefer you not in the gym, you know, three days a week for 90 minutes. I would much rather you in the gym 20 to 30 minutes, but seven days a week. Everything has to do with the regularity. What is over your lifetime, over your month? What does your body in a 24 hour period, which is arbitrary, we came up with 24 hours, but over the course of your life, those good things, that heart rate stuff, how often did you do it? And so it's the, it's the oftenness. And that's why I also promote cheating in the sense of diet and lifestyle. I'm like, it's fine. Like, it's fine because are you doing it every day or not? Everything just matters on your day-to-day shit. Excuse my language. Sorry. It is stuff. How are you and what is your body doing day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, and year-to-year? And that will have humongous implications 10 years from now, five years from now, when cancer rates are going up crazy. Cancer is a, a problem of old age, like of older age. By far, the number one factor is waking up the next morning. There's no other factor outside of inherited rare, you know, things that makes you more likely to have cancer. That's why by the time you're 65, 70 as a female, your chances of breast cancer are one in four or one in five. Like it it goes from unlikely to 25% at that age. Why? Because things evade, immune system wanes, et cetera. So I love that as the first one. And I think that's something that's very tangible. And I think actually having it be the smaller daily things is seems to be a lot easier, I think, than having some big goal that you need to do. What are a couple of other those preventative lifestyle things we can be doing? So the other one is pretty easy to appreciate because you just have to look at other places on what their diet is. And it's very simple, right? You look as a scientist and say, where is colorectal cancer not happening? Because everyone is talking about on the the media, you know, younger and younger colorectal cases, younger and younger, and it's true. It's just straight up true. People are getting in their 30s and 40s way more than they ever have. And then you look at places that they don't. And then 
interestingly enough, they brought some of those people. They're like, they have some crazy mutation that's like frees them of colorectal cancer. We got to discover it so we can inject it in everybody because everyone wants a shortcut. So they brought them over here to study. And guess what happened? They all started having colon cancer. They all started getting colon cancer. And like, whoa, so it's not the genes. It's the American diet. And what the diets are, number one, they are more active and walk around more, right? But number two is the indigenous people of like Africa and and back kind of where the uh, Eskimo people were before. Now it's kind of become a disaster. But when they were on their diets, dependent on what's around them with fish and stuff, they were getting very low rates because of two, mainly two things, especially indigenous. Number one, the carbs, they, they had mostly low glycemic diets. So, you know, I know y'all have talked about that, but that seems to be a humongous factor, not just on cancer, but on heart disease, dementia, like, like neurologic problems, strokes, all this crappy stuff. Like why is diabetes and overweight always on the list? Like I wish overweight wasn't right. I, I'm overweight every now and then. Like it, it just is what it is. But if you look at overweight, from high processed foods, high sugar spikes, needing insulin, having glucose dysregulation versus overweight. That's not for any of those reasons, but because they just like to eat, but they run and they have a low glycemic diet, they will have different outcomes, even though the same BMI and same overweightness, right? So it's a little bit more. I think, I think people are too fierce or too like judgmental on the weight part as much as the diet that led to the weight. So high spikes in glucose. We just know. I mean, you talked about with COVID. Oh, these are the people at risk, risk, risk. It just causes calamity and everything. When you're in, when your insulin isn't enough to do the job, like that's where this very sticky thing that is an energy source just has to go places. That's why we have fatty liver. We're just storing it in the liver because we've got nowhere else to go. And then they call it insulin resistance, but it's like it's actually you just have so much processed spikes in your carbs and sugars that the body's like, bro, I don't know where to put it. Put it in the liver. Oh, it's not enough. Let's inject you with more insulin to put it somewhere else. Like that's what we're at. And it's not necessarily our fault, right? We wouldn't be around if our tongues didn't love high calorie stuff. When we were nomadic and wearing loincloths and like, dude, what are we going to eat? I'm hungry. And it's like, I don't know. We'll find something. Let's chew on some berries. When you found that like fatty kill, that boar and you ate it and you loved the taste of it, that makes that those people that didn't love it probably died off because it was three or four days. They didn't have the calories, but the ones that loved it. Like we're able to get to that next kill. The love, the love, the mango. I love mangoes. They're so sweet. So you, we have this almost natural selection to desire things that will keep calories. But now for 99 cents, you will have it handed to you, the boar and the mango and everything through your window in a car. So you don't have to get out, right? We're one step away of actually having it put to our mouth. Like it's like five, it's like six yeah. inches away from me. <laughs> so it's not totally our fault, like people's, because we've adapted this way over thousands of years and the convenience is just too insane. It's like you have to yeah. actually combat what you're primed and wired for. And so I don't like the judgment on that piece, but there's no question that having these like high process, high sugar, high glycemic spikes, which I love, I love a star crunch. They just cause bad problems downstream. Do I eat star crunch every couple of nights? Yes. Mm. Right. I was a soccer enthusiast and that was my favorite treat in, in, in halftime. So try to eat less of that. And the second reason that people have less cancer is because of this cruciferous vegetable thing and, and fiber. Those, they're all kind of the same thing. We just, as Americans, we just don't like it. My kids are guilty of this. And I blame this because they're American. I'm American. I was born here, but I'm like, why, why do kids inherently hate colored things, greens and vegetables? And like, like, bro, it's a color and it happens to coincidentally be the things that are really good for you. So you got to have these like kind of, you know, legumes and nuts and, and really diversify your diet. That's another thing we learned. Other people eat what they can eat, the oats, the legumes and the, and the surface. They just, they have a very diversified diet. Whereas in America, it's very narrow. That's why we have a lot of autoimmune disease and, and allergies on like people like, Oh, I break out in a rash for this. I break out in that. And then you're like, Oh, what do you eat? Well, I don't eat chicken that looks like it's, you know, prepared in, a, in an Eastern Asian way. Why? I don't know. Cause it looks, looks Japanese. Like it's like, it's all of a sudden everything that other is used around the world just because more and more, 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 more narrow, you know, and that's not good for your immune system. Your immune system, your gut should be exposed to a whole bunch of different things to learn it. Otherwise they get bored and then they attack things that like, Oh, this looks like a in 35 years. I've never been exposed to this allergen or this like thing that I'm inhaling or this food that I got because I decided to take a backpack trip to Italy. And then you just start having autoimmune stuff and your gut just gets confused instead make it very hearty 
make it diversified, make it, you know, wholesome. Don't be radically politically on either side. Hear both sides. These things are important. Diversify it. Don't be narrow on your diet. Low glycemic index just seems to have humongous dividends. And if you don't know what that means, it just means like, just pack up more on like the vegetables, ideally fruits, you know, also, and if you can, and like red meats, I think it's unquestionable that they're bad for you, like for cancer and for other, uh, other reasons, unquestionable, but I eat red meats too. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier, like, what are you doing on a daily, weekly, yearly basis? It is not too late for anyone listening to this at all. It's just not just like, and you don't have to remove any one thing you're eating right now from your diet for the rest of your life. Not one, but just do it less. Yeah. Those are great takeaways. And definitely that diversity for your gut is so critical. And I love how you say like, you're not pointing a finger. Um, and, and so much of, you know, I had Dan Buettner on the podcast who did uh, blue zones and it's his whole conclusion is, you know, it's, it's the environment that has the biggest impact on our health. And unfortunately here, we have that accessibility of the thing right out your window. That is the easy thing to do. It's, it's the inside your expensive window. thing. It's easy. And the variety of vegetables aren't easy. You know, the number one and two vegetables in America are tomato from ketchup and potatoes from French fries, because that's what's everywhere. And right. so you really have to fight for yourself to it's it's hard it's that friction to, yeah. to do it differently which is really not easy one of the things i'd love to also touch on with this point is that you know i think historically we thought that so much of cancer was the coming from genetics and that i believe is not really accurate so i'd love you to shed some light on how much of it is genetics versus epigenetics and really that again that lifestyle piece where we do have the control over our destiny is there yeah 100 percent. so 15 percent of cancer maybe maybe uh, even 15 some people say it's a, a 10 is even high but 10 to 15 percent is because of something you were inherited with from your parents which means 85 to 90% of every cancer diagnosis has no gene and oftentimes no family history, no significant. So if you're one of those people that say, well, I don't get my screening because it doesn't run in my family and see how inherently, I guess pun very pathetically, <laughs> intended, how inherently that doesn't make sense because most cancers by far are not inherited, right? So it's more laws of probability and then also lifestyle. So probability, you know, there is a piece of it that's just bad luck because people can have terrible habits. Like plenty of people in Louisiana that smoke, you know, just a hundred pack years is what we call it, you know, like two packs a day for 50 years and they never get cancer, right? But they also they may never get COPD. COPD, 10% of smokers get COPD. So it's like, it's the same luck principle to that degree. But does that mean that you smoke if only 10% of people, you know, end up getting cancer and COPD? No, because you just know it's a risk. So very little is an inherited mutation, you know, 10 to 15%. The rest is completely based on lifestyle, as you said, and epigenetics, which means you may or may not have a, you know, a thing that, that may kind of give you a nudge under the circumstances. It's like if you wear an oxygen tank, like you're born with one, you're lucky only if you're a scuba diver. It doesn't really do anything if like, on day to day, it's just just a burden on your back, right? Same concept. It's like there are things you, where you can invite things to be a problem if if you invite them, like that's how. And and those are you know we're learning more about. But a lot of these behaviors we talked about, especially exercise. I mean that that. And I'm talking. This is somebody that doesn't exercise. You ask me how do I keep up? Is because I have to like mostly give that out. It's it's terrible. And I have a plan. The key is anyone listening to this is have a plan. So my plan is to change things around at the end of December and just make sure that just take the L, take the loss for the last six months. Because I'm like, I don't want to do this forever. So January 1st is where things will get better. Same with any of you, like listening, just start with one thing, intermittent fasting or, or take, or just reducing the carbs and whatever it is, you just start. And then that makes, that's what pays the dividends down the end is to say, I did, I did, I continued to do something. You know, you don't have to be perfect, but even if you add one thing every year, you're doing something. Yeah. All about the small changes. Yeah. But as you're working with patients who, do end up having a cancer diagnosis. What are some of the ways that you work with them beyond treatment? And what do you see as, you know, 
is someone making healthier changes after diagnosis really make a shift? So I had Kelly Turner on the podcast, who had whose book is Radical Remission, who I loved hearing her stories and her her nine tips or, or findings, I guess, of ranging from changing your diet to you know, increasing positive emotions, releasing suppressed emotions. Have you seen that come to life? And would love to hear your stories of, of that. So the thing, it's not even what I've seen. It's the data itself shows that all of those play a part. So I am ashamed of this. And I'm guilty of it. But even when I trained, I say even, eventually I, I need to stop saying that because it's been a hot minute. <laughs> but, uh, but when I trained, you know, five years ago in fellowship, for the most part, I was left with the conclusion or belief that diet doesn't matter uh, with a stage four cancer rate. And to some effect, to some effect, I can't say that's true. Like the calories, like you want to get calories in no matter what at the beginning, because as we said, it takes a lot of, you know, burning out um, of your good calories and you got to get through treatment, et cetera. Uh, I justified by saying that's why we said that. But we're learning it makes a big difference. And they're starting to just explore that. And it's difficult for an oncologist. It's not that the oncologist is refractory or, or like just not open-minded. It's, it's, it's just brand new. And like for outcomes, think about it. If you have a stage two or three to show that it makes a difference, what do you have to do have to follow that patient for a year or two or three or five to say, yes, this is what helps. This is what doesn't, this is what makes it worse because just like diets can make things better. They can actually make things worse too. And that's why it's just so complicated is every, every step we take, we're like, oh, but this is actually a lot trickier than we thought. Like it's just continue it. And, and we've seen that in medicine forever, right? I mean, people used to think smoking was good for you yeah. decades ago. So is that a reason not to trust? I mean, it's it's a reason to be your own empowered person, you know, but just trust your sources. That's the key too, because things that sound too good to be true probably are only because the human body is just so, so impressive. I mean, if there's one thing that doctors or scientists in the past and, and current say that make them believe in something else. It's just how unbelievably intricate it is. So with all that said, diets do affect and some of there is a lot of thought to not necessarily glucose, but yes, glucose itself too. And I'll tell you why. It's not true that you can just stop glucose and be keto and the cancer goes away. But some cancers cannot use good energy from ketones right? Which is ketosis. Like they can't, they just can't um, because of it's complicated. The way they burn it is something called mitochondria. So if you know someone with cancer and you read the path report, you might see dysfunctional mitochondria. That's a feature of cancers. So that's where this theory came from. It came from Wahlberg where, where basically he injected mice and saw that it did work. But they're so smart that they also are able to hide, you know, use one or two or three cup amino acids so there's a lot of studies, and that's why studies are important, in my opinion, to where they're incorporating traditional like therapy with restricting either glucose or this amino acid and seeing it make a difference. And things are pretty promising. So on one granular element, there's that. But at least if you listen to this, you can say there's a truth to it. So don't let anyone tell you that it does not matter. It does matter. Even eating pears apparently makes your chances of responding to immune therapy this is an observation they're studying it now that they realize that it's better that they have better and deeper remissions with immune therapy if they eat pairs well that's my point in saying wtf like why the fuck yeah. does that make a difference on an immune therapy response but it but it's starting to show that that's how complicated this is but as a whole the same rules that apply to you getting cancer one can see how to prevent a recurrence or to improve the cancer when you have it makes a difference. And a lot of it goes back to glucose and insulin. Like insulin is a growth factor. What does cancer mean? Literally, cancer means unregulated cell growth. So when you're pumping out high levels of insulin to treat the glucose, you're, you're, you're inviting growth to some effect. And so that's where all those theories come from. But the emotional stuff and psychological and mental, that we know plays a big difference and I'll give you the easiest way that if anyone argues with you, that you can argue with them and make them feel kind of like an idiot. When you have sleep apnea and you don't get good restorative sleep, that deep REM sleep of like, you may not know you're waking up, but that's the only oil change for your brain, which is your car and your spinal cord 
that you can get. Your liver doesn't do it. Your kidney doesn't do it. It's only deep sleep, deep REM sleep. That's the only way you will flush out toxins. You look at them and you see that their rates of everything is worse. Like erectile dysfunction, decreased sex drive, all of this stuff, cancer, stroke, heart attack, you name it. Sleep apnea, people with higher cortisol, which is a stress hormone, because it goes up. Because it's like, bro, I'm not getting my sleep. I'm like, that's why you're unrestored. And you treat it and things get better. The same thing applies to also stress hormone cortisol when it comes to emotional stress and sleep quality and working out. All of these things help. And when you have less calamity with those things, then your body is in a better, what's called homeostasis. It's chilling. It's not inviting places to where it suppresses the immune system. A lot of people argue it all goes back to the immune system. Like it's like it's, it's cortisol decreases it. No, that stress does. And if you can make it better, but you have better outcomes and longer outcomes. So, you know, tailors a lot to it. But even a positivity, like positive attitude, that shows on data that people have better outcomes. So does prayer, et cetera. So that, that goes back to mood and happiness. And a lot of those things then we know are achieved with working out, sleeping well, et cetera. So, you know, I know that's not the flowery answer because I can tell you several stories where it's made, you know, a big difference, if nothing else, on that finite time that my patient has that I have by doing those things. There's a billion, a gazillion reasons on why it makes you healthier, just in general, that by association, you know, would make the process easier. But but I get granular to really give you the science to say, this is why you can say that these things matter. And then you have tons of good material, like, you know, you, you, like uh, Liz, where you were promoting the things that just help all of those things. Whether you have cancer, whether you don't have cancer, whether you're a survivor, those are the things that matter. We know that on a granular level from diabetes and stroke and like in, in, in erectile dysfunction from sleep apnea to the same, the same concept with cortisol and stress it makes a difference. And so when you do things that like chill you out, meditation, yoga, right? Cold showers in the morning, they tap into the anti-stress thing. The stress thing is your sympathetic system. And these is like Greek mythology. They are your whole life are at odds with each other. If one goes down by 20%, the other goes up by 20%. There's no in between. They always are combating. If you live in overdrive, like you sleep poorly, you're always stressed, and all this stuff, your sympathetic is on, is on, you know, is at 8,000 RPMs in fifth gear, fourth gear. It's not healthy. How do you bring it down? Working out boosts the parasympathetic system. Cold showers. I'm not talking these ice baths and stuff. That's that's a different concept. Shocking your proteins, shower. whatever. But cold showers pouring on your face, it stimulates your vagal nerve, which your vagal nerve, again, sounds kind of flowerly Greek mythology, helps the parasympathetic, helps repair, helps your immune system, helps all of these things. And whatever helps your parasympathetic, good sleep, yoga, meditation, positive attitude, happiness, working out, all of those things help the process that fight the shitty things that are cancer and stroke and, and all these other, you know, this other stuff. Love it. Tips that we can all be using in our daily lifestyle. Yeah. For sure. So where do you think cancer treatments are headed? Where what's what's the future? Oh. Call it in the next three years. You know, not we're not talking 10, 20 years from now, but in the foreseeable future. Okay. So right now. We are, you're hearing about targeted therapy and immune therapy. So before we treated everything with chemo, chemo will always have a role. And that's, that's a different podcast, but, and I talk about it often on my channels, but it'll always have a role because it can quickly bring down the amount of cancer you have. Immune therapy, we're learning. We're like, hmm, this thing is really challenging. Wait a second. It basically became a thing because our immune system wasn't able to take care of it. Oh, we should look at that. Let's see if we can make our immune system take care of it when you have it. Oh, sure enough, it works. That's what that's what immune therapy is. It allows your immune system to do the, the thing that it would have done if it could have. And so you enable it. You don't just rev it up by pumping immune boosters through the vein, but there's strategies. And if you can re-enable your immune system to do it, that's awesome. Number two, targeted therapies. These are things that we can tell the feature. Like if you have the same flowery tie that I have and I'm a bad player, I'm a bad guy. And if you could see that tie and you can say, go kill that people wearing that tie rather than all brown people, like that would be somebody be like, I'm not bad, Sanjay's bad. Like the, the thing is, this is targeted <laughs> versus chemo. And, and that's, you know, those are pills nowadays and things that are much better tolerated. But the reason I sighed when you asked that, and it kind of blew my mind, but I had Jason Fung who wrote the diabetes code, the cancer code and all that. He kind of blew my mind. And I went down that rabbit hole on saying, 
is it right that we're doing targeted therapy and so excited about it? Because it may neutralize the cancer that is expressing it, but we know cancer is outsmart. So are we just chasing our tail by basically when it forms and we do a different targeted therapy, let's go down to its fuel source. And that's the metabolic stuff I talked about. Does keto diet plus deprivation of a specific amino acid and stuff basically make the down to its last cell die? That's a cure. That's why it's hard to cure because it's getting it down to the last one that's challenging. And then on top of that, and you touched on it, I don't know if you did it on purpose, but you touched on everything that that is the future, is how do we find these things sooner? And if we can do it better than a freaking, you know, mammogram, which you still need, but if we can just find it much sooner, yeah, right? So if you could find the things that you like, you know, you know that person is going 8,000 RPMs at, on fourth gear, let's find out where the quickest gas consumption is. That's imaging that will really help us find something much sooner rather than pictures which require an average CT scan requires 200 million cells in one place to see it, crazy. to see it. Bro. That's crazy. So if your scans are clear and you have a hundred million or, or 50,000 or a hundred thousand, you just didn't see it. Like that's, that, you know, that's what's challenging. But that's why we have the liquid biopsies that we also talked about. Well, you're genius. <laughs> but like, that's where the liquid biopsies help because they can actually tell you that some of the blueprint of how to build this house is a sketchy house. That's a cancer cell. That's what you're doing when you get a blood test for cancer. I was even just thinking like, I'm into all the wearables and all the data and all that stuff. If there'd ever be a way that you could have your aura ring, even tell you like your symp- your number of your sympathetic system versus your parasympathetic system, just to give you like this baseline to be like, wow, I didn't realize that I'm, I thought I was stressed. I didn't realize how stressed and like, turns out I'm living every day at like a thousand. Oh, hundred percent there are, hundred percent there are. And you're, you're wickedly brilliant because- so I, I started the Google director of applied AI, Scott Penberthy and I, and, and Doug Flora and David Penberthy started the AI and precision oncology journal. You talked about wearables, the same things that tell you what's sympathetic and parasympathetic, you know, on a, on a basal level on a metabolic level, you can, you can see some of these cytokines and communicators. It is conceivable now that you can wear an implantable that tells you what area of your body you know when that calamity is happening or that engine wrapped up too fast on too many RPMs, there's signals that happen in your blood that you can then localize and say something has changed with AI because it knows pattern recognition compared to what you've been the last year and a half. And then that will clue you into saying there is something that is awry in your body because this metabolic expenditure, this signaling was not the case at that time. Wow, that's so cool. That's that's why I loved that you said three to five, and that's why I sighed before you gave me a direction, <laughs> because because it depends on how far you want to go, but all of that stuff is doable. That's so cool. I think I actually just saw, I think it was Peter Atia maybe on Instagram had a post this morning that said something like, like hang in, essentially it was like hang in for the next couple of years and do the most that you can do for your health until we know all this technology yes. is coming. Yes. Right. And I so- say that a lot to my patients. I'm like, you're stage four and incurable, but I'm like, technically, but I'm like, if this first line works two years, I'm like, bro, we don't, I, it's, it's almost inconceivable that if, and when I'm like, I do not want you to gripe on the fact that that is a curable or not. It's binary. That requires us to stop all progress in its tracks and not, not, not go forward at all. So anything I say to you, if you ask for that survival, fine. But even that's sometimes inaccurate because that's usually on older drugs that we don't have, but I'm like, let's just get to our goals. I'm like, let's just pray that this thing works for, if it's 18 months, let's wait, we'll pray we get 20 because it's 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 crazy to even think about what happens then just the way that stuff is coming out now yeah. and, I, and it's so nice to be able to say that for the first time in my career that's amazing all right we're gonna end with some rapid fire q a three things that you're currently loving could be anything uh being a dad love my children love seeing them grow up love seeing some of the qualities precipitate by far. I think that's, that's, that's great. Number two things that you said, I love, I love really social media and how much people want to be engaged on medical stuff that used to be distant. And then the third thing, the weather, cause it's always really hot in Louisiana and it's starting to get cool. <laughs> what do you want more of in your life? Um, I think just time. That's a very sad answer, but, but yeah. Time to self and family, I mean. Sure. Favorite TikTok of yours? Oh, 
It could also be like the most viral one too. The most viral one. I think my favorite one is my favorite TikTok that I'm proud of would be anything that has to basically take a a pun on the soundbite. So like if I'm talking about something medical and you know it's a rap song, but then it applies to what I'm saying in the in the overlay, I'm just like ah, and really my only only biggest fan. It's a fan <laughs> club of one, but but I, I get excited when I accomplish that. Love that. Best life lesson that you've learned as an oncologist? Um, I would say that just always give show, give and show grace, you know, with everything. It's like just, you know, life I see every day is very finite and uncertain. And it's like, just give grace, give grace to other people. If they have an attitude with you in their store, like, you know, what they're going through, you know, I just, I just see quote unquote everyday people 20, 25 times a day that just keep growing and getting stronger and are far stronger than I could ever be. And it's really taught me that one, it's just not worth it. Like, like being an angst, because again, we forget about our timeline. Like, why does it take a cancer diagnosis to remind you? And then two, you know, just always show grace. It just never hurts. Love that. And lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? And this is kind of a cheat answer, but it's 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 the same as the previous is like showing the grace to like well one obviously moving forward, but two like showing the grace like don't be discouraged for a setback. Like it's like the key to wellness is grace on your, like giving yourself grace to get there. And if you have that and are always in the right direction, then then it becomes positive. If you're in the right direction, but you don't give yourself the grace beat yourself up for X Y Z. You had a lousy. I told you I wouldn't have more time in six months. Like I didn't have grace. I would be depressed about that, but instead I have a plan. And I think uh, that goes a long way for all of us, you know. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here today. In closing, where can everybody connect and find you? Yeah, so it's the Onk Doc really is is on all of our social media platforms, I guess. T-H-E-O-N-C-D-O-C. It's the real Onk Doc on, on X, formerly known as Twitter. And then, um, and then target cancer podcast. I wish I didn't have the word podcast in the title, but it is those three words. And, uh, that's on, you know, Spotify, Apple, um, YouTube, everything like that. Wonderful. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me for everything you do. And especially for everyone listening and trying to do the most, like if you don't feel it, you should be proud of yourself, that you even listen this far. I mean, it's like that you were doing the most. And at the end of the day, what else matters more than being able to say that? So thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.